Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, today was Donald Trump's 100th day as the president of the United States. And of course, the media is uh, covering this event uh, and looking back over the last 100 days and trying to assess the effectiveness of uh, Trump's presidency thus far. What has he accomplished? How much progress has he made? And I think the origin of looking back at the first 100 days of the first term of a president goes back to Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who, of course, became president uh, during the Great Depression. And I think that the president accomplished a lot during his first 100 days. And I think that's kind of been the benchmark by which future presidents have been judged. You know, hey, how how did you do in your first 100 days? You know, and now we can go back to FDR, who who did a lot. But of course, it's not about making progress. It's not about, you know, which president did the most good for the country during his first 100 days. It's just... Who did the most? Because FDR did a lot of stuff, pretty much all of it bad. I mean, not pretty much, all of it bad, right? All of the mistakes, all of the bad things that Roosevelt did in his first 100 days, not only did they elongate the Depression, but they have repercussions throughout uh, you know, the decades. I mean, we are suffering today from the mistakes that FDR made in his first 100 days. So I'll give him... The fact that he did a lot, he accomplished a lot during his first hundred days, but he accomplished a lot of bad things. See, I would rather have a president do nothing for his first hundred days. If a president just played golf for a hundred days and did nothing, chances are that might he might be the best president we've ever had, because most presidents do damage to the economy during their first hundred days. I mean, to the extent that they pass a law, chances are. The law just limited our freedom and reduced our standard of living. I mean, and that's true for most uh, politicians. Doing nothing is better than doing something because doing something normally means doing harm. You know, I wish that politicians would take a hypocritic oath, you know, like like uh, the doctors to do no harm. If politicians took that oath, they couldn't do anything because pretty much all they do is harm. Now, to the extent that a politician can or a president can undo the damage done by a prior president, if he does that, then that would be a good thing because you're taking away the bad things that a predecessor did. And I recognize that some of the things that Trump is trying to do is to undo the stuff that Obama did. And for that, you know, I applaud him. But the problem is he wants to add his own mistakes. Sometimes he wants to repeal a mistake that Obama made and replace it with another mistake. So that's not necessarily progress. But, you know, I am not going to try to figure out 
you know, whether or not these 100 days, you know, how much was accomplished, good or bad, uh, during the Trump 100 days. I just thought I would mention uh, the milestone because a lot of people are talking about it. But one thing that didn't happen on Donald Trump's 100th day was a government shutdown. I got the news last night, I read about it on the internet, that a shutdown had been averted. Now, if you remember, you know, this was a non-crisis as far as I was concerned. I spoke on this podcast in the past that I did not believe there was any chance that we were going to get a government shutdown, that I didn't think the Republicans in Congress would hold President Trump to the same standards that they held President Obama, that they would not threaten to shut down the government unless the president, you know, reduced spending or made a significant inroad into, you know, tackling the debt. I knew that they wouldn't do that to their own uh, party. And I knew that the Democrats weren't going to shut down the government to force cuts in government spending because they want more government spending. The last thing that the left wants to do is shut down the government. They love the government. So there's no way that the Democrats are going to shut down the government. The Republicans aren't going to embarrass their own president. Trump didn't want to shut down the government after he ran as a great negotiator to bring people together. So nobody wanted a government shutdown except me. Why did I want a government shutdown? Not because I think it's going to be good for my investments. I actually think it's bad for my investments. I think a government shutdown is good for the country. It's like shutting down a cancer, right? The cancer is hurting uh, your body. Let's shut it down, right? Let's not find a way uh, to, to keep it alive. Remember, the whole initial concept of the government shutdown, and this is why I ran for Senate. This was my main stump speech. Send me to Washington because I will shut down the government because I will refuse to raise the debt ceiling. See, that's where all the shutdown stuff is coming from, right? They have to agree to a debt ceiling raise. They have to do these continuing resolutions. I was telling the Connecticut voters, send me to Washington because you want to throw a monkey wrench into that political machine. I will, under no circumstances, allow uh, the government to raise the debt ceiling. I will force a shutdown in order to force real cuts in government spending. And so the reason I would like to see the Republicans, now that they're in charge, to shut down the government and actually force uh, the Democrats to agree to large spending cuts that they would never agree to. But here you have the Republicans now. They have the House. They have the Senate. They have the presidency. And they're not going to shut down everything. You know, when they just had Congress, oh, yeah, they made a big deal about we'll shut down this government in order to cut the deficit so they can, you know, show their constituents at home that they were serious about cutting the deficit. Well, if they were actually serious about cutting the deficit, they would be willing to shut the government down now while there is a Republican president. In fact, what I would be doing if I was Donald Trump is I would be shutting down the government myself. I would refuse to sign a budget that wasn't balanced. See, I wouldn't have to wait for a balanced budget amendment. If Congress sent me a budget that was not balanced, I would veto it. Even if it meant the government shut down, I would force Congress to override my veto to reopen the government. And if they couldn't do that, they would have no choice but to cut government spending. If I was the president of the United States, the budget would balance right now. Not in the future. It would balance now. And it wouldn't balance with tax hikes because that's impossible. Right. The only way to balance the budget is with big spending cuts. So the fact that a government shutdown was averted is a bad thing. Because it means it is business as usual, 
in the swamp because the government is not going to shut down. They're going to keep on borrowing. They're going to keep on spending, which means the Fed is going to keep on printing. And so we're going to go deeper and deeper into debt. We're going to create more and more inflation. And we are headed right to this complete economic collapse that I've been warning about for years and years. And nothing is changing. Right? So all again, all the people out there who believed that Donald Trump was going to make America great again, that this was a game changer, that he was going to drain the swamp. None of that is going to happen. Right. Everybody is swimming around in that swamp. You know, they're doing backstrokes. They're, they're having a good time. It is business as usual. The government's going to keep getting bigger. Our standard of living is going to keep getting smaller. And, you know, we are headed for this crisis. It doesn't matter. And the fact that they are not shutting down the government, that is the problem. Shutting down the government is the first part of the solution, you know, because that's what brings a about a reduction of debt. Remember, the debt ceiling isn't a crisis. It is it is raising the debt ceiling. That's the crisis. If they're going to pave the way for another debt ceiling increase, see, the media is like, oh, that's great. Right. Hey, they're working together. It's bipartisanship. Yes, they're working together to arrive at a harmful conclusion, raising the debt ceiling increasing government spending, continuing to move unobstructively on the road to ruin is not a good thing. But politically, hey, Trump now gets to celebrate his 100 days and say, yes, you know, see, we didn't have a shutdown. I negotiated it. I made a deal. I'm a deal maker. And so the national parks are not going to be closed, uh, you know, for your summer vacation, right? You know, you know what? Close the national parks. It's a small price to pay to save the country. You know, it's like, oh, the kids, you know, they can't go to Yellowstone Park or Yosemite. You know what? If you care about the kids, they can skip a year of going to the national parks or maybe even some of the uh, attractions in Washington, D.C. If we can save their future by preserving their economy, their country, their standard of living, by preserving the Constitution, that's what's more important to our kids uh, than a summer at the national parks. But, you know, another uh, interesting element of the 100 days of uh, Donald Trump is the fact that the optimism that surrounded his election is still here, right? You still have a lot of people who are convinced that everything is going to do great, despite overwhelming evidence that that is not the case. On Friday, and I mentioned on the podcast I did over the weekend, that the um, first quarter GDP, the first look at the first quarter GDP, came in at just 0.7%. And of course, when the year began, there was all sorts of optimism. In fact, the Atlanta Fed started out at about two and a half, I think, initially. And then they quickly ratcheted up their estimates of growth to 3.4%. And that was as late as February of this year. And then by the time we got the 0.7, they had actually reduced their initial estimate down to just 0.2%. Right. So they started off very optimistic. And as the data came out, uh, they eventually, you know, threw in the towel and, and ratcheted down their numbers to the point that when we finally got the number, their 2.2 percent was actually above the 0.7 percent that we got. But you know what? Based on the economic data that we got today, it looks like it's probably going to be closer to 0.2 than 0.7. In fact, it may even be below 0.2 because we got. Uh, some weak economic data. It wasn't all weak, right? The PMI manufacturing index 
came out pretty much exactly as expected, but it was weaker in April than it was in March. So that is a downward trend in that number. But the ISM manufacturing index came about came in much weaker than expected. Last month in March, it was at 57.2. So April, we were looking for 56.5. Instead, we got 54.8. So a lot lower than what had been expected and much lower than the March number. Also, another negative part of the report was prices paid really shooting up. So you have prices increasing and growth slowing. So instead of Trumpflation, which everybody thinks is a good thing, it really looks more like a garden variety stagflation, a la Jimmy Carter. And there's nothing good about stagflation. I mean, not that there's anything good about inflation either, but there are some people that believe it's good, but I don't think anybody believes that stagflation is good. Yet that is what we're getting. The construction numbers that we got for March was a mixed bag because they were looking for up 0.5 and we got down 0.2, but they revised the February number from up 0.8 to up 1.8. So overall, I think it's a slight beat. But, you know, when you're going down, when you have a huge drop from February to March sequentially, that's not a good sign. And, you know, year over year, the construction spending dropped from 5.4% year over year last month to just 3.6% year over year uh, this month and last month. So 5.4 down to 3.6, that's a pretty sharp line. I mean, what's going to happen next month? I mean, take a look at the trajectory. So I think that would be somewhat worrisome. But the most worrisome number of all was the personal income and spending numbers that came out for March. Now, this is all for the first quarter. Well, they were initially looking for up 0.3 on personal income and up 0.1 on personal spending. Instead, we got personal income up 0.2, which was less than expected, and personal spending was unchanged instead of being up 0.1. But making it worse, they took last month's, so uh, February, they initially recorded personal income as up 0.4. Now they revised that down to just up 0.3. And the February consumer spending number, which was originally reported as up 0.1, has now been revised to flat. So 0.0, no growth at all in February and no growth at all in March. These are some very weak numbers for the largest component of the GDP. So based on this number, we're already looking at a downward revision to the 0.7% initial estimate that the government had. But what makes it all the more crazy is the Atlanta Fed, because after all this data came out, right, all the bad data came out today, that suggests that A, Q1 is going to be lower than the original estimate. And we've already got negative numbers below estimates for numbers from April, right? This is the earliest data that's coming out about uh, Q2, which is already below estimates, the Atlanta Fed came out with their forecast for second quarter GDP growth, and I I am not making this up, 4.3% is their forecast. I mean, you got to be kidding. I mean, are these guys crazy? I mean, are they be serious with this number? 4.3%, look, 
Last quarter, they were looking for 3.4% and they got 0.7, which is going to be revised down. Now, you would think that they would go back now when they're trying to come up with a number for Q2 and they would say, you know, we were very optimistic about Q1. And, you know, it didn't pan out the way we thought. Maybe the economy is just not as strong as we thought. Maybe there's a problem out there that we didn't recognize back in January and February. But now that we've got all this new information, the economy is clearly not as strong as we thought. So maybe we shouldn't start out with a really, really high estimate. No, no, no. They actually are starting out with a much higher estimate for Q2 than they had in Q1, despite having all this information about how weak the economy was in Q1 that they didn't have a few months ago. How is this possible? Obviously, the Atlanta Fed is just completely optimistic about the economy. They're biased. They believe the economy is going to grow rapidly. Why do they believe this? Well, because they did all the stimulus. They applied all their medicine and so they expect the patient to have a full recovery, right? They don't realize that they're leeching the patient, right? And, the, and that the leeches don't work. They just figure, well, we just need to give the leeches a little bit more time. And if they didn't work in the first quarter, well, they're surely going to work in the second quarter. And so what they're probably doing is they're saying, look, we didn't get a lot of growth in the first quarter. So therefore, we, we're probably going to get extra growth in the second quarter so that the two quarters still average out at a pretty good growth rate. Now, why do they want to do that? Because they want to still pretend that the economy is growing strong so that the Fed doesn't have to change their rhetoric, right? So that the Fed can still act as if everything is fine and they don't have to start talking about not raising rates or admitting that there's a problem. So you have this Atlanta Fed out there saying, nope, we're just looking for 4.3% uh, growth. Based on what? There is no data. They have no data really to go on to base their estimate other than pure optimism. But what are they basing that optimism on? And in fact, if you look at the data that was coming out last quarter, the March data was worse than the February data. The February data was worse than the January data. So the data is already on a downward trajectory. What evidence do they have to suggest that it's about to make a U-turn and skyrocket the other way? There can't possibly be any evidence to support this rosy pie-in-the-sky assumption of economic growth. Yet they put it out there and people believe it. Okay, nothing to worry about. Yep, we got a weak quarter uh, in the Q1, but don't worry. Atlanta Fed is saying 4.3 for Q2. But these are the same guys that said 3.4% for Q1, and they missed it by a mile. So if they were so wrong in the first quarter, why are the same people who got it completely wrong a few months ago, now going to get it completely right. I mean, if anything, you would say, well, here they go again. It's the same old mistake. They're just extremely optimistic. They just believe uh, that the economy is going to be strong because they assume that things are going to get better because everybody is going to be optimistic and it's going to just start all this hiring and all this consumer spending. But it's all going to come out of the blue, kind of like, you know, in the spring, right? You get you know, things blossom in the spring. All of a sudden, you know, you got trees budding and the leaves are coming back, right? So I guess they assume all the growth is just going to come back. It's just going to blossom in the spring. There's no real, you know, evidence that you can point your finger to. It's just going to happen. You just have to have faith. You just have to have confidence. And this is a game. But you would think that most people would just look at this and say, 
there they go again, right? They're just going to ratchet this number down. They're going to start up really high, and they're just going to keep ratcheting it down as they get more and more evidence that shows how weak the economy is. See, right now they have no evidence. So they just start with a high number just out of pure hope. But you need to have a rational basis for that hope. I mean, if anything, you would say, okay, we were way overly optimistic last quarter. Obviously, there's some problems that we didn't recognize. And in fact, the data has been weakening all quarter. You know, let's come out with a more realistic uh, number for Q1. Uh, You know, even if you're a little optimistic, okay, maybe 1% or 1.5%. Okay, that would be believable. You know, I think a more believable forecast would be that Q2 is going to be worse than Q1. Because if the data has been getting progressively worse, why wouldn't that trend continue in April, May, and June? And in fact, one of the things that the Atlanta Fed is citing specifically is optimism. They believe that there will be more optimism. Why? I mean, first of all, the Democrats aren't going to be any more optimistic, right? I mean, they, you know, as soon as Trump won, I mean, optimism among Democrats plunged, right? Because their their gal Hillary didn't make it. And, you know, Obama, you know, was, you know, Attila the Hun, right? I mean, he was going to just destroy the country. I mean, what are they going to be relieved that we just didn't have World War III yet? I mean, we are dropping bombs, right? Uh, but there's nothing, I think, that the left is all of a sudden going to say, hey, Trump's not so bad. I think they're just going to hate Trump no matter what. So I don't see any renewed sense of optimism in the second quarter for the Democrats that were so disappointed in the outcome of the election, and they were still disappointed in the first quarter. But I do think that the Republicans, who were so optimistic about you know Trump making America great again, I think that the bloom is going to come off that rose. In fact, it's already coming off. I mean, the optimism, I believe, is still fading. It's still there. Believe me, there's still, as I said earlier in this podcast, there's still a lot of optimism, including at the Federal Reserve. But I don't think people are as optimistic as they were three months ago. I don't think they're as optimistic as they were two months ago. And I I think they will be even less optimistic one month from now. And two months from now. And I think the optimism will ultimately be replaced by pessimism as reality sets in that it's more of the same. That the problems haven't been solved. That we didn't really elect somebody who was going to drain the swamp. He's just going to make a home for himself in the swamp. He's just going to be swimming in the swamp just like everybody else. I mean, you know, maybe he's not as, you know, as monstrous a creature as Hillary Clinton would have been. You know, and I and I, you know, I mean, I'm giving him that, but just not being as bad as Hillary, just being another George Bush, you know, that is not going to turn the situation around. And again, even turning the situation around would require a lot of stuff that in the short run would actually be very painful. That would actually be very negative for short term GDP. And so none of this stuff is going to happen. I've known it wasn't going to happen. But when people were expecting a quick fix, a miracle cure, And when it doesn't happen, when their lives don't instantly get better, when all of a sudden all these government rules and regulations that businesses were struggling with, they're all still there, right? 100 days in, 120 days in, 150 days in, we're still complying with these rules and regulations. We're still paying all these taxes. The cost of living is still going up. Our health care costs are still going up. Other costs are still going up, right? Jobs are not there. You know, people that have low-paying part-time jobs, they still have those crappy low-paying part-time jobs, right? Just like the Obama voters who thought that just electing President Obama 
And I'm never going to have to worry about the rent. I'm never going to have to worry about food, right? Just the way people became, you know, disillusioned with all those promises that they were going to get. The Republicans are going to be, you know, disillusioned even quicker. They're going to realize. So that optimism is going to go away. So think about this. If we only got 0.7% GDP growth, and again, it's probably going to be lower than that, especially given the numbers we got today. So we barely got any economic growth in the first quarter. When optimism was at its highest, why is the Atlanta Fed projecting that we're going to have 4.3% growth in an environment where we're obviously going to have less optimism among businesses and consumers than we had in Q1? If all we could muster was 0.7% with all the optimism and enthusiasm that happened right after the election of Donald Trump, how are we going to have so much stronger growth based on confidence when the confidence has faded, because now we're talking about four, five, six months after the election of Donald Trump. So I think that it's much more realistic to say that if we got 0.7% in Q1, that we're going to have even less than that in Q2. But how can the Atlanta Fed possibly come out now and forecast a drop in GDP? Because that would basically mean the forecast of a recession. If they actually were saying that Q2 was going to be lower than Q1. They'd basically be coming out and saying, we think there's going to be a recession. Well, if the Atlanta Fed thinks there's going to be a recession, how could Janet Yellen be talking about raising interest rates? How could she talk about shrinking her balance sheet when you got the Atlanta Fed forecasting a recession? So they got to get on board. They got to predict some pie in the sky number so that they can create cover for the Fed. Oh, there's nothing to worry about. Yes, we had a temporary slowdown, but we're going to get this huge number. So now we're going to have to wait a few more months. We're going to have to let all this data come out so that the Fed can then ratchet down the numbers once again. And then ultimately, we'll have this really weak number for Q1 and a really weak number for Q2. Then what are they going to do? Are they going to come out with this massive, rosy, pie-in-the-sky 5 or 6% GDP that they're going to forecast for the third quarter or the fourth quarter so we can bail out the whole year and still pretend that we're not in recession? Or even if the first two quarters are negative, we can have such a massive forecast for Q3 that we're going to say, well, you know, it doesn't really count because it's, the whole year is going to be strong and it was, you know, just blame it on the weather. You know, I still have, there are some people that have blamed Q1 on the weather, but, you know, I forget what it is. I'm not sure if they're blaming it on the weather because it was too warm or too cold or just because we had weather, you know, and, and, and so, but they're not going to be able to blame six months on the weather. Um, at some point, they're going to have to acknowledge the weakness in the economy. But again, I think the problem for the Trump administration is the longer he waits to acknowledge that weakness and the longer he wants to claim credit for economic growth that doesn't even exist, the more difficult it's going to be for Trump and the administration to shift the blame for the recession on Obama after he's taking credit for having done so much and taking credit for the stock market and jobs numbers. When it all falls apart, he's obviously going to be blamed. You know, in the markets, when the, uh, the news came out last night that the government wasn't going to shut down, gold sold off, right? It was up about, I don't know, three bucks or so early on last night. Then we got the news and gold immediately sold off to down about four or five bucks. And, and then that's where it opened. And we got all the bad economic news out early in the morning. Gold managed to rally back to unchanged, maybe like up a buck. And again, given how weak this economic news was, you know, you would have expected a bigger 
a rise in gold, a, a bigger drop in the dollar. I mean, the dollar really didn't do anything. It rallied a little bit again last night on the news, the supposed good news that the government wasn't shutting down. And then the dollar surrendered those gains, and it was pretty, you know, pretty much unch on the day. It ended up a little bit lower. But given how weak these numbers were, the dollar should have weakened. I think that the Atlanta Fed number was supportive of the dollar and really hurt gold. In fact, after the Atlanta Fed number came out, there was a large sell order in the price of gold, and the price of gold dropped 10, 12 bucks, and the gold stocks once again got clobbered. I think the gold stocks are now back down near the lows from where they were uh, from the last gold correction before gold went on to make a new high. And gold is still, now it's back below 1260, but it's still comfortably above uh, 1250. So gold is very close to its original high, but the gold stocks have pretty much made the round trip as if gold was still headed down. And I, it makes me think that people were looking at this data and the Atlanta Fed caused the markets to think, oh, scare's over. Yes, we got all this bad news, but don't worry. Look, we're going to get 4.3% growth because the Atlanta Fed says so. And people don't realize that the Atlanta Fed has absolutely no credibility because either they're outright lying, right, which they may do, and I've said this, they're just there to try to create a false sense of confidence. So they always come out with a positive number no matter what. And if that is the case, if that's, they're always going to assume the best, if they're always going to think everything's going to be good, then who gives a damn about their forecast? Because their forecast means nothing because they're just there to sell the U.S. economy. They're there to sell the people, sell investors on how great the economy is. It's like a used car salesman. You know, you got this real lemon on the lot. Uh, it's a complete disaster. You don't expect him to come out and point to all the flaws when he's trying to sell that car, right? Nobody takes anything that a used car salesman says for granted, right? You got to, you know, let me have a test drive. Let me have a mechanic take a look at that car. I'm not going to believe what you say, right? Well, you know, think the same way the Atlanta Fed comes out with an estimate early on of how great things are going to be. They're a used car salesman. So either they're just lying or they're totally incompetent because they're always wrong. So either way, either they're lying, they're deliberately you know, disseminating misinformation, or they're completely incompetent and they're always wrong. And if they're a contrary indicator, right, if they're always wrong, right, then just, you know, assume the opposite. So if the Atlanta Fed comes out and says growth's going to be 4.3, well, then, you know, knock off four percentage points. Probably 0.3 is probably a lot closer to where it's going to be because look how much they missed Q1. They missed by a mile. They couldn't have been more wrong if they tried, which means maybe they did try. But if they didn't try, they're completely incompetent. And if they're completely incompetent, why are the markets pay attention? But they are paying attention. But you know what? Pretty soon, they're going to pay attention to reality. I don't know how much longer uh, this snow job is going to last as far as you know estimates. Because we're going to keep getting more economic data, and the data is going to be bad. And people are going to start to realize that the economy is slowing down, that the deficits are heating up, inflation is heating up, that... The Fed rate hikes are nearing their end. As I mentioned in the last podcast, inflation is heating up on the continent. Uh, the ECB is going to have to start backtracking. They're going to have to start tapering. That this whole scenario that investors have created for themselves is completely wrong and is about to unravel. And you still have the opportunity, I think, as, as an investor, to continue to place winning bets against a consensus trade that is completely wrong and that is about to blow up.
Today's financial advisors behave like pro-wrestling TV commentators. They scream that the recovery is strong, debt is manageable, inflation is low, and that the Federal Reserve has everything under control. They may be oblivious, but the danger is real. Looking beyond the media hype can open a world of broader investing ideas. Euro-Pacific Capital is a registered investment advisor that offers stock-focused wealth management services that closely follow the strategy of our founder and CEO, Peter Schiff. We concentrate on those countries that are more closely in tune with Peter's vision of how capitalism is supposed to work. And these investments are not hard to find, provided you know where to look. Isn't it time you change the channel and let Euro-Pacific put a little reality back into your portfolio? If you live in the United States and have $25,000 or more to invest, call 800-727-7922. That's 800-727-7922. Non-U.S. residents access similar strategies through Euro-Pacific Bank at europacbank.com. Euro-Pacific Capital and Euro-Pacific Bank are affiliated companies. Hello, this is Peter Schiff. I bet you didn't know that without silver, you wouldn't be hearing this podcast right now or be able to use a computer at all. From laptops to smartphones to TVs to speakers, virtually all modern electronics use silver to conduct electricity. Did you know that the average solar panel uses two-thirds of an ounce of silver to function? And the solar industry is expanding dramatically, not just in America, but in booming developing nations like China and India. Silver is naturally antibacterial and is used extensively in modern medicine. Silver coatings are being added to breathing tubes, bandages, catheters, and other medical instruments to reduce the spread of infections. When antibiotics fail, silver still works. I believe the 21st century will be the century of silver. As fiat currencies continue to collapse and new uses are found for silver every day, the white metal strong industrial demand and low per ounce price will make it increasingly attractive to savers around the world. At today's prices, people of any age and background can afford to buy some silver. Learn why silver is a smart and reliable investment in my free special report, The Powerful Case for Silver. Visit ShiftSilver.com and download it now. The Powerful Case for Silver includes information about silver's amazing chemical properties. It also explains why I believe silver may outperform gold in the coming years. Download The Powerful Case for Silver and educate yourself, your friends, and your family about the white metal. Just visit ShiftSilver.com to download my free report. That's shiftsilver.com.